everyone, my name is Peter Caldas. I'm the CEO of the American Society on Aging, and welcome to Future Proof. You know, we're in a moment in our country's history where we're having a real reckoning with racial injustice and a long history of police brutality. Anybody, regardless of your immigration status, should have a job where they can make ends meet and where they want to stay long-term because it benefits workers and it benefits consumers. You know, simple conversations like these really help people open up their minds and just be open to the notion that maybe we aren't doing everything we can be doing. Everyone. My name is Peter Caldas. I'm the CEO of the American Society on Aging, and welcome to Future Proof. This is our first episode of season two of Future Proof. You'll remember Future Proof was started to really get at innovations uh, that leaders were implementing in response to COVID. Well, in season two, we want to explore innovations leaders are implementing with respect to equity and justice issues. It feels quite timely now, given what our country's going through. And I know many of our ASA members are really struggling with this question. Uh, and so today on Future Proof, I'm really excited to share that we have Robert Espinoza, who's a nationally recognized expert in aging, caregiving, and long-term care workforce issues. Robert is currently the Vice President of Policy at CHI. Uh, in addition to serving on ASA's Board of Directors, he was appointed by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to its advisory panel on outreach and education, as well as by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine to its forum on aging, disability, and independence. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today on episode one of season two of Future Proof. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. So today we'll be addressing the issues of equity and justice, and specifically how they intersect with your important work uh, for the long-term care workforce. So let's just start on a daily basis. Let's just, just look at what's going on in the headlines right now related to police brutality, racial injustice. Where's the intersection? How does that affect the workforce you represent? It has a profound effect on the direct care workforce. I mean, I think in general, we're seeing that, you know, we're in a moment in our country's history where we're having a real reckoning with racial injustice and a long history of police brutality, specifically on black people, but also on black and brown communities. Um, and it's a topic that shapes our system and it shapes all of our workers as well. Our research shows that about 59% of direct care workers are people of color and about 30% are black. Um, so when you think about what a worker brings kind of in their lives, in their minds, when they come to the job, they're coming with that experience of of violent police brutality in some instances, and overarching the, the kind of challenges of systemic racism, right? They've been subjected to probably a lifetime of differential treatment, of discrimination on the job, in their lives, on top of living in a police state where they fear for their lives. I think it's a real kind of reckoning for our country and for our long-term care sector to ask, what does it mean to support people who deal with that constant violence, that constant threat of violence in their lives? So obviously our ASA members understand what a direct care worker is. Could you just define it for those who may not be familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. So direct care workers by definition are home care workers and nursing assistants 
who support older adults and people with disabilities in a variety of settings. They do this work in people's homes, in nursing homes, and in a variety of residential care settings, like assisted living settings. Um, there are about 4.5 million direct care workers, and many people don't know that it's actually the largest growing job occupation in this country. But unfortunately, even though they are incredibly valuable to many of us, um, they don't receive high, they don't, they don't work in high quality jobs that pay them enough, that offer them enough training or opportunities for advancement. Um, so it's a workforce that's also incredibly neglected. Robert, I know your work at PHI tries to address a lot of these inequalities and, and, and really elevate the profile of the significance and the impact of the direct care worker. Could you share a little bit about how PHI responds to this uh, challenge? For sure. I mean, we've been around for almost 30 years. Um, our focus is on strengthening the direct care workforce and specifically in elevating the role of direct care workers in the healthcare system and in our broader economy. Um, we do this work through a variety of ways. We study and analyze the workforce. We look at demographics, at job characteristics, at future job projections, and we issue analyses and reports um, to help people understand who these workers are and where they fit in the long-term care system. Also, all the challenges that they face. Um, the other piece is we have an array of workforce interventions where we work closely with providers of all sizes all around the country um, who are interested in better training workers, creating advanced roles, uh, improving their recruitment and retention efforts. And we learn from these interventions so that we can really inform the field. The final thing is we advocate for policy reforms at the federal, state, and local level. Um, there is a big role that government can play in improving the quality of these jobs. And we actually partner with government leaders and with agencies to help them understand these issues and then to, of course, enact a range of reforms that improve these jobs and ultimately improve care for all of us. One of the areas that I know you are actively involved with is that of immigration. So as an expert in immigration, you know, how do you see the policies of the current administration impacting the direct care workforce in the short term? And then I want to sort of ask that you think about it in the long term as well. Absolutely. I think in the short term, um, it has been a few rough years for immigrants and for immigrants in the direct care workforce. Um, a few years ago, PHI issued a study that looked at the composition of immigrants in the direct care workforce, and we found that about one in four direct care workers is an immigrant and a total of about one million immigrants. Now, our research only looks at direct care workers who are part of the formal system, but we can assume that in the gray market, where a lot of consumers will hire workers basically off the books because that's all that they can afford, that immigrants are probably a big part of that sector as well. Um, so what we know is that the long-term care system relies on immigrants and would probably collapse without immigrants being on the front lines of this workforce. Unfortunately, in the last few years, we saw a number of measures that really meant to punish immigrants working in this sector and actually across the country. Um, we saw a Muslim ban right when Trump was elected as president. Um, we saw the removal of temporary protected status for many workers. Uh, the kind of the, the discourse became more xenophobic over time. Um, immigrants became the targets and the scapegoats for crime in this country, which is not an accurate representation. And what we saw in our workforce, in our, in our sector, is that immigrants felt less stable in their communities. And because of that, they felt less stable on the job. Um, so it became kind of more difficult for immigrants to do their valuable work. 
it became more difficult for employers to hire immigrants um, and retain them because there was something about the fabric of their lives that was being torn apart. Um, and it's only been increasing in the last few years. Um, it's complicated because when our research looks at the future demand for these workers, we show that between 2018 and 2028, the long-term care sector will need to fill 8.2 million job openings in direct care. These are workers, these are jobs that are being created by, by demand, new jobs, but they're also workers who are leaving direct care for other sectors because it doesn't pay enough, because it's, it's too psychologically demanding or physically demanding, um, and because there are better jobs in retail or fast food, for example, right? Um, so immigrants are absolutely a key part of the solution. And all of this anti-immigrant sentiment is hurting us just when we need it most as a country. You know, while it's probably particularly um, obvious that this administration hasn't been terribly helpful in its immigration policies, to say the least, I'm wondering if you could also talk a little bit about the legislative outlook around immigration and specifically as it relates to direct care workers. I'm wondering, has Congress been helpful? Are there helpful proposals? Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, in the next year or so, depending on sort of the makeup of, of our presidential administration and also a Congress, I think, you know, there is an opportunity for us to think about kind of sound and, and very needed immigration policies that would help resolve so many of these challenges that I mentioned. Um, some of these proposals are coming out of the long-term care industry. They're coming out of advocates who, who really understand the, the need that employers have for immigrants in, as, as workers. And some of these proposals are based on, for example, um, developing a temporary visa for, for foreign-born workers to come into the U.S. to take on these roles um, and to really help meet demand and, and providing those temporary visas. Um, I think there's also an attempt to think about how do you recruit and build the pipeline of workers um, from all parts of the world, and whether it's a temporary visa or some other approach. Um, two challenges that, with this approach that I think we'll need to sort through as a sector. Um, one is that you know, many of these proposals don't really offer a path to permanent residency. And for immigrants who actually want to become Americans, who want to become a part of the country long term, um, it doesn't really offer that path. And that's something that immigration rights advocates have rightfully noted in many of these proposals. Um, the other concern is that too often immigration status in these proposals is tied to the employer. And so the employer has the ability to decide you know, whether or not they stay employed, and if they don't stay employed, they lose their immigration status, right? And that's a problem that can lead to a lot of exploitation. Um, we've seen a number of news stories, even television tackle this topic. How do we make sure that we tie these kind of really important proposals, not to employers, but to some broader system so that employers don't exploit workers and create kind of a bigger problem? No, those are, those are all, very difficult issues and they're so tied up in so many other areas of immigration that it's really hard to get a win here, right? It's, it's hard for Congress to move the needle on just one aspect of immigration. It feels as though uh, the only way to improve our immigration system is the approach of a complete overhaul. But I'm wondering, what's your take on a piecemeal approach? I, I think ultimately we do need an overhaul. I think that, you know, that we, and I'm not an immigration policy expert where I can speak to all those dimensions, but 
what I, what I know from the direct care workforce angle is that it's not working, right? I mean, I think that we live in a system in which, you know, the demand for direct care um, compels many immigrants into the sector. We live in a system that doesn't allow people to afford home care, for example, and so they go outside of the formal market and they hire mostly immigrants kind of off the books um, where they can also be exploited. And the exploitation can happen in both ways, by the way, in the gray market. Um, and we have a system that, you know, in a, in a global perspective, you know, people are living in countries that are in disarray, that are falling apart politically and economically, um, and where people fear for their lives. And so they see that, you know, coming to the U.S. as an opportunity not just to make a better life, but to survive. And, and yet, how do we create the right kind of set of immigration policies and principles that, that you know, acknowledges that there might be a cap on how many immigrants are admitted into the U.S., um, but does so in a way that's more humane, that's more reasonable and that acknowledges kind of the needs of workers and the demands on employers. You know, I wonder what you think of the notion that we shouldn't be relying almost exclusively, it feels like sometimes, on immigrants for direct care workers. Mm -hmm. So what's the response to someone who says, well, why can't we hire U.S. citizens who are here already looking for jobs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see it as almost like two trains running. So our primary train is we must improve the quality of jobs for direct care workers across the board. That means higher wages and compensation. That means benefits like paid leave and childcare. It means better training standards and training opportunities for workers, uh, advanced roles so that workers can advance in their careers, and so much more that the sector needs. Um, because anybody, regardless of your immigration status, should have a job where they can make ends meet and where they want to stay long term because it benefits workers and it benefits consumers. Um, unfortunately, we're far from that. Um, and because so often direct care jobs are low in quality, you know, we're, we're left with thinking, how do we boost recruitment and retention into the sector just to meet basic demand? I mentioned the 8.2 million jobs will need, job openings we'll need to fill by 2028. Immigrants are a part of that question, right? We must, we must um, support immigrants in a variety of ways. Um, and there are roles for providers, too. I don't think it's all public policy. Um, we recently, about a year ago, we interviewed an organization based in New Mexico called Encuentro, um, which is a community-based organization that supports immigrants. And they had developed uh, a home care training program for Spanish-speaking immigrants. New Mexico is a border state, and there are high percentages of, of immigrants from Latin America and from Mexico. Um, and they developed a program that was you know, accessible to people who primarily spoke Spanish. Um, it abided by state standards, state training standards. And at the end of their training program, they you had kind of a, a, a pool of home care workers who could go into the community and support also immigrants who are consumers. Um, we need those kind of innovations um, that can support immigrants, but we can't lose perspective on the, on the overarching goal, which is really to transform the quality of direct care jobs. So let's move away from using immigration policy and improving it as a tool uh, to improve our workforce, our domestic care workforce. What other things could we be doing as a country or could localities be doing or could even our ASA members be doing to improve the pipeline of direct care workers? Sure, absolutely. So when you look at the primary reasons why 
so many direct care workers leave their jobs. Um, two issues that come up right away are low wages and poor supervision, right? So there's something in there as well. Now, when you look at other reasons, you see, you know, also concerns around training. Uh, there are no advanced, there are limited advanced roles in this workforce. Um, and just the psychological and physical demand of direct care makes it hard to recruit new workers as well, right? Nursing assistants have some of the highest injury rates as any occupation in this country because they're lifting so many people within one schedule, right? Um, so I think part of ensuring that we have kind of adequate numbers of direct care workers um, is improving the quality of those jobs through all those measures. Um, I think it's largely a policy question, although I'm biased as a vice president of policy. Um, I think it's a role for federal leaders and for state and local policy leaders. And we've outlined a variety of measures that can be done depending on what you know state leaders are interested in or federal leaders. It can start with developing a plan. I mean, we did a report last year where we showed 16 states that had commissioned statewide work groups on direct care, and they had outlined really ambitious and realistic uh, blueprints for change in the direct care workforce, right? And those plans will hit on things like, you know, improving wages, uh, ensuring paid leave and childcare for workers, uh, better training, advanced roles, stronger data collection. We don't have good data on direct care workers at the state level, and that hurts us. Um, and I think part of that is is also the role of providers. I think providers are interested in you know playing a role as advocates. They want they are, they are they themselves are struggling with recruitment and retention, um, and they can play a role in passing that public policy. Um, the one thing that I'll say is that in this moment, um, what we have seen is that an overarching problem for the direct care workforce and their employers is the lack of funding. Right. So so many states. Medicaid is the primary payer of long-term care, and Medicaid is often strapped in state budgets, and labor costs are often the highest cost within those budgets, right? Well, as those states you know, shrink their budgets, and we're seeing that with the COVID-19 reality, the ability for those providers to receive enough money just to deliver care is gonna shrink, and it's also gonna shrink in terms of their ability to improve jobs. Um, and so how can we make sure that we better finance long-term care? and finance this workforce. I want to sort of follow up on that is, do you think, do you have a sense of whether, you know, the pandemic has gotten folks thinking a little more creatively about the financial question? You know, I wonder if we can make these jobs a little bit more uh, palatable to folks and that they actually pay uh, the salaries and more than just the living wage, and it sort of is attractive as a sector. I'm wondering, could we see a change here? Do, do you think the pandemic will have contributed to a, a rising uh, salary and, and, and wages for folks in this space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hope, you know, one thing that the COVID-19 has shown is that when direct care workers don't have quality jobs, they're not able to deliver quality care. In many instances, we saw home care workers who knew that their employers didn't have proper protection, uh, you know, PPE, supplies, et cetera, um, and they themselves did not have access to paid leave. And so they had to, they had to make the impossible choice. Do I go to, to my job and risk getting infected and then infecting my families and clients, or do I stay home and collapse financially, right? And many workers chose not to go to work, which of course ultimately affects the delivery of care. Um, so we're in a point in which we need to understand that equation a little better, that quality jobs leads to quality care. And if we don't improve quality jobs, 
Um, many of us won't have the home care workers or the nursing assistants or the residential care aides um, to really deliver that care. In terms of financing, this is a, a tricky question that can get wonkish really quickly, but I think it's an important one. Um, a year ago, um, I had helped, I was part of an expert panel that advised a new report on universal family care as part of the National Academy of Social Insurance. And I advised specifically the long-term care section. Um, and what the, what the committee was grappling with was this reality that, you know, for, for many people, the only public support to pay for long-term care is Medicaid, but Medicaid requires you to spend on your income and assets. It's for people who are in poverty, right? Um, so it really kind of depletes the resources that many middle-income people have, um, and it makes it hard to deliver that care, and it creates all these other dysfunctions. And so what the report proposed was, you know, could we think about a social insurance program option for long-term care that would one, so that would really allow consumers, you know, the money to be able to hire home care workers, you know, live in a nursing home if that's their option, um, or in an assisted living facility, um, and not require them to spend on all their income and assets. Um, we've seen some energy at the state level. Washington State passed a modest version of this. Um, Maine was considering the ballot initiative, and we are always in conversation with states around the country. But where the report didn't go, and this is where PHI stepped in, is it didn't it kind of outline how these social insurance programs should also improve the quality of direct care jobs, right? If we're gonna put money into making long-term care more affordable, why not make these jobs also high quality since affordability can only have, and accessibility kind of go hand in hand, right? So we, we produced our own report called Workforce Matters, um, where we outlined various areas from training to better supervision for supervisors, to better data collection systems and so on. Um, as measures that should be included in all of these social insurance programs. The ideas are there, but is the will there, right? I think we're at a point in which we need the states, various states and the federal government to say, we need social insurance in long-term care. So one of the things that we touched on at the beginning and I'd like to return to now is, is this notion of, not this notion, this very real racial discrimination that uh, affects our direct care workers. So could you share just generally um, either examples or perceptions of how racial discrimination impacts uh, our direct care workers by the public or by the older adults they serve? Yeah, absolutely. So several decades ago in the 30s, um, when the New Deal was being debated, um, direct care workers um, were exempted from basic wage and overtime protections um, for decades. It was actually not um, an issue that was repaired really until 2010, although it took several years to do court cases to, for them to achieve that. Um, and part of the reason is that there's a historical record showing that Southern segregationists, for the most part, employed racist rhetoric to say that people of color, largely women of color, didn't deserve those wage and overtime protections. It wasn't real work. And I won't go into the specifics of that, but there is a record that shows all of that. Um, and this is a really great example of how racial injustice ultimately hurts all of us. It doesn't, it primarily hurts people of color, but it hurts all of us because of those exemptions all direct care workers, regardless of the race and ethnicity, didn't have basic wage and overtime protections for decades, right? And the, and the job was devalued and is still devalued in many ways because it's considered women's work and thus not real work, or because like many other highly people of color sectors, it's, it's, it's devalued, right? Um, two ways in which we see racial injustice, or I see racial injustice affecting this workforce. Um, one is that we did a study two years ago 
looking at um, racial and gender disparities in the direct care workforce. Um, and in many measures from basic wages to um, you know, part-time hours, et cetera, um, there were modest differences and, and you know, across race, across gender, et cetera. Um, but when you looked at median family income, uh, women of color earned a median annual income of a median family income, we should say, of $20,000 less than white men in the same sector, right? Um, and far less than white women and far less than men of color. Um, what that tells us is that women of color have kind of a depleted social safety net. They're coming into these jobs with decades of discrimination that have reduced their earnings and their earning potential and their family incomes, their nest eggs, so to speak, right? Um, and in a disruption like COVID-19, they have something less to fall on say, than white men and white women. So, and it tells you that in a, in a workforce that is already marginalized, that women of color in particular are facing additional disparities that make their jobs more intense. The final issue I'll point out is that, um, to this question is that um, a few years ago, I, when I first started at PHI, about five years ago, um, I began looking at the media coverage on direct care workers. Um, just to get a sense of what the conversation was like and where there were opportunities to, to build that. Um, the most common news story you saw at the time was the story of what I would call the home care thief. This was the story of a home care worker who was hired by a consumer um, and the home care worker robs them. Um, they, they, you know, they steal their money, they, steal, they go into their accounts. Um, in some cases, you know, elder abuse as well for, for, for workers who are supporting older people and they devastate the lives of the people. Um, and, the, and the stories were often paired with these pretty awful mugshots of mostly people of color, right? And so you saw this headline that was devastating, of course, for the consumer. Um, but what it, it inadvertently did was it, it reified the racist representations of people of color as criminals, right? And just recently, I saw a story about a newspaper that was deciding that they would no longer print mugshots of people of color because research has shown that it feeds racist ideas of people of color as criminals. Well, that was the racist idea, that the implicitly racist idea that framed most news coverage five years. I can say that five years later, we don't see those photos that often, although we still struggle with the question about, you know, are home care workers going to put people's lives in danger? Um, a valid question, but an overstated one. Yeah, it's overstated, and I would argue that now we need to see media stories on the home care heroes, particularly given the pandemic, right? It's these home care workers who are doing the most difficult and some of the most risky work right now, given um, the pandemic. So, I'm, you know, it's funny. It's, I'm so glad you brought that up because we think that the power of the media at ASA, we think that we have to do a better job of demonstrating the value of aging generally, but like ageism, like racism, um, anything that devalues the human does not help <laughs> the, the narrative here, right? And so similarly with a workforce, you know, how do you think we could do a better job of demonstrating that this particular workforce has value and should be paid according to their value? Uh, I think there are a number of, of arguments or narratives that I think should support that. And some of the work, some of those, a lot of those narratives are, are narratives that PHI has put out, but we're still also seeing others adopt them. I mean, one is just noting the role, the essential role of direct care workers 
not just during a crisis, but in general, right? I mean, I think that many older adults and people with disabilities rely on direct care workers to make it through the day. Um, and as we see kind of the number of older people increasing in the next few decades, people are living longer. We're gonna, and also we're seeing an increase, you know, in conditions like dementia, uh, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. Um, direct care workers will become that much more critical to people's lives and to their survival. Um, so really keeping that top of mind. And I think people like, you know, like us or like everyday people who see the role of direct care workers in their lives um, can attest to that. I and mean, the more we get engaged in storytelling about workers, the more we take the, our own realities and, and challenge the narrative that workers are thieves, but actually are, as you said, heroes and essential to the fabric, I think is really important. The other piece is that I, you know, as a policy analyst and as a thinker, I also think we need to make stronger arguments about the role of direct care workers to the economy. Um, there, are, there is research showing that, you know, especially with home care workers, that home care workers can provide really optimal home care for consumers that prevents costly hospitalizations um, and that prevents, you know, employers and the whole system from collapsing under the financial weight of that, right? So direct care workers and good training, advanced roles, all of that um, can help improve the kind of outcomes that oftentimes governments and payers want, which are economic and financial, right? Um, I think the pairing of those two narratives um, could go a long way. So one of the things that we started off with was talking about police brutality, and we talked about it linking it to the direct care workforce. I think there might be some lessons now in how local and state jurisdictions are reconfiguring the their local policing. I know that some of them lowered their budgets or have disbanded them outright, uh, sort of doing things from a community perspective. I'm wondering, are there similar kinds of approaches to achieving equity and justice with respect to the direct care workforce? Sure. I mean, I think, uh, as, if, as I understand it, I think one of the central um, policy reforms that you know, the, the, this movement, this racial justice movement is asking for is, you know, what they term defunding the police. And, and central to that is the idea that, you know, cities and states should be investing more money um, into basic services that people need. Um, we, I think that absolutely could benefit direct care workers. Um, that money could go to improving wages so that workers aren't, aren't earning poverty level wages and are actually able to create the life that they want. I think that money could go to ensuring a better safety net to paid leave and childcare. Um, I think it could go to creating stronger training programs um, so that workers have the skills, the knowledge, and the confidence to do their jobs. Um, and I think it could go to a bigger investment in long-term care that allows all of us to afford it um, so that we don't have to exhaust our income and our assets um, in order to qualify for home care, for example, because we know the government is picking that up. They're playing, they understand the value um, and they, they understand that the lives of older adults and people with disabilities matter, um, and they should be publicly supported. Um, I think that's one of the biggest lessons um, that we can take from this moment around direct care workforce supports. So. The other thing that strikes me is perhaps some of our members uh, may assume that because you are in the space of serving older adults, that somehow uh, you are not uh, stricken by the same biases that, say, others might have. And I'm wondering what role does implicit bias play here? How can we do a better job of 
identifying it in ourselves and also in the delivery of services, whether they're uh, you know, direct care or volunteers are providing the caregiving. I'm thinking, you know, talk to some of the community-based organizations who are members of ASA with, with some ideas there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we have tried, especially in the last few years, um, to really challenge ageism uh, in all of our work, both, uh, you know, our programs and policies, of course, our internal operations, and in our marketing and how we describe the challenges and the realities of direct care workers. Um, we avoid words like seniors and elderly or terminology that people in the kind of the reframing aging movement have, have called out as potentially kind of activating ageist assumptions about older people as being frail and not having agency over their own lives. And we look for, for, for ways in which our language can show that. We're also cognizant that we need to speak in a way that's still understandable and that people get the right images, but we want to make sure that we're not um, kind of pushing forth that image. Um, one misconception about direct care work for workers that we confronted directly a year ago is that actually there are a number of older adults who work as direct care workers. So it isn't just a binary of younger people supporting older adults or able-bodied people, you know, supporting people with disabilities. Um, and we found that one in four direct care workers is aged 55 and older. Um, and that oftentimes, you know, worker, older workers are bringing years of work experience um, and family caregiving experience to these jobs. Um, and they, and, and that kind of wisdom, that character um, is really important to be successful as a direct care worker. And it was a big aha moment for us internally. We had it framed direct care workers as an older demographic, uh, but for, for the broader sector, it was an opportunity, I think, for them to think about how do you support older workers as older people, right? Are there specific issues, needs, in ways that don't veer towards paternalism, but actually in real considerations, right? Post-retirement issues or uh, second or third career concerns, right? Those kinds of issues. Um, so it was, it was a way that I think we took our internalized, you know, uh, assumptions around age and turned it into a lesson for the field. Robert, there is so much I could talk to you about with respect to racism and equity and the direct care workforce. We're seeing it in the front pages of all sorts of uh, uh, newspapers and on, on, on TV, just given what's going on with the pandemic. Uh, so unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I do want to ask you uh, one question. You know, um, in season one, I asked Future Proof uh, folks uh, about leadership and their take on, on leadership during a crisis. For this season on equity and justice, I really want to ask a more personal question, and that is um, your aha moment. Uh, you talked really about having an aha moment at PHI. I'm wondering, what is, where, when was your aha moment on why equity and justice issues matter to you? I think my, my first major aha moment, I probably had a number of aha moments you know, before that, all through my childhood and high school, et cetera. But one of my major aha moments, I think, took place in college. Um, I, um, I, it was my sophomore year in college, and I had come out of the closet, and I was really engaged, interested in engaging in advocacy in some, in some way. This was the, the mid-90s, mid to late 90s. Um, and so I started looking around what was available on our campus. Um, and I was recruited into a group of, of student activists who at the time were interested in the issue of affirmative action. Um, our university was a state flagship school in Colorado, and we had become the target of the right wing as a state that needed to eliminate affirmative action. So a bunch of really smart 
progressive multi-issue advocates, um, activists um, came together to say like, how, how do we preserve this? How do we, how do we make sure that, you know, we retain diversity in our, in our affirmative action policies? Um, and even though, you know, as a, as a Latino, as a gay Latino, as somebody who probably benefited in many ways from affirmative action throughout my life, I had not thought about how it operated as, as a public policy question, right? As, a, as an issue that affected our university. Um, so part of that process was really sitting down and learning from other student activists who are still some of my closest friends, and I would consider them family at this point, about the nature of affirmative action, the history, decades worth of work that had gone into that work, um, how uh, kind of the opposition works and how they will dismantle the systems that many of us rely on and that protect us. Um, and it was a great learning because even though we weren't successful at the time while I was in college um, on that issue, I learned that so much about policy reform is movement building work and that it often takes decades to achieve, but it takes a willingness to work. And I, I take that lesson through all my, through my entire career um, and I use it now in my, in my daily work. Uh, we're part of a movement, we're not just part of the organizations that we're employed by. And I think that this entire month of June and May, uh, more and more people, whether they know it or not, are joining the movement, right? They're, they're sort of waking up to the notion that they may very well not consider themselves racist or not, uh, uh, you know, get into things that would otherwise uh, get them into trouble legally, whether it's, you know, any kind of, any form of discrimination. Uh, and yet they too are being challenged uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're being caught up, brought into the movement. And, and I think, you know, simple conversations like these really help people open up their minds and just be open to the notion that maybe we aren't doing everything we can be doing. And as a white man, you know, I know that I have an obligation in being in a position of some leadership at the ASA, but also just being a citizen in this country. We all have an obligation to open up our minds, listen, and actually take action, right? And so, and so I think I'm always curious to hear uh, when you thought, uh, when you had your aha moment in taking action, because I hope to learn from uh, leaders who joined Future Proof in the coming episodes about their moments as well. And so we can all learn from that to just hopefully take some more action <laughs> against racial inequity and injustice. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for your candid uh, answers and your response. As always, you're such a strong leader at ASA. Thank you for being so involved. Thank you, and likewise, thank you for, for including me, and I look forward to the future conversations. And to everyone else, thank you for joining us. Uh, season two, like we said, of Future Proof is all about equity and justice. We hope you enjoy this first episode and the lineup that's coming up. Thank you very much.